This episode is brought to you by LiveFastDiePoor.com, home of Random Land, Tyler's Tales from the Underground, Jeff's Columns, and my future columns. Visit LiveFastDiePoor.com. Also, crypto country is coming, I swear. Please stop asking me. No, it's too scary. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And you guys will never hear this, but we just spent five (laughs) minutes recording the ad for this week's episode because George kept messing it up. Well, you know, I had a really good cheeseburger for supper. Oh, is that that what the problem was? I think it's it's weighing on me pretty heavily. On your brain? Yeah, and plus there's like there were there's a lot of weird words like random, random. Yeah, and, and Tyler, and Tyler Evans. That's really hard to say oh, sometimes. Man. This is the, the stuff that you only see when you're inside the Communicore Weekly Studios. Um yes. Well, I'd say it's something that you would see at our potential live shows, but we've only had one. That's true. That's true. Well, t- theoretically we had two. We did a live from the internet show once. Oh, that's true. And that that's was a complete disaster. Yeah, yeah. We but we won't that. talk about that. But so we, can we call the upcoming D23 show our second annual, not quite annual live show? I think you just made the official title for the show right there. Write it okay. down so we don't forget it. Okay. We're not including the word magic in the title. <laughs> and we should be good to go. <laughs> On that note, let's jump into the history. It's time for Disney History. Every time you visit a Disney park, it seems like the longest line is always, always for Peter Pan's flight. It doesn't matter if it's off-season or it's the busy season, chances are you're probably going to be waiting for over an hour to soar over London and Neverland. Which, you know, is totally fine because it's a great ride, uh, even though it's better at Disneyland, as George uh, recently yeah. learned. Correct, yes, it George? Is. It is. It's, it's, it's shorter, but better. Yes. Okay, good, good. So, much like Wendy, John, and Michael from the film, billions of guests have experienced what it's like to fly past Big Pen toward the second star to the right straight on till morning. But, what is it about this ride that causes people to wait so long to experience it? So, we kind of thought it was time to take a look at the making of the attraction to try to see why it's so loved by people. Um, before we get into it, special shout out to the old e-ticket magazine for assistance in a lot of this research. So much so that this segment is going to be broken into two different history segments. So instead of a Disney history, should this be like behind the attractions? Perhaps. Like the old VH1 behind the music where... Or with James Lipton? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we find Peter Pan's attraction on the side of the road. No, never mind. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there. Okay. So Peter Pan, Snow White, and Mr. Toad, uh, they were all Fantasyland's original dark rides and were designed and installed within some of the tightest and had some of the most last-minute deadlines before Disneyland opened in 1955. Herb Ryman's May 1954 concept for the ride uh, sort of predicted many of its major scenes, but showed a mermaid's lagoon and a huge rainbow not later included. He envisioned a more down-to-earth approach, 
with the guests enclosed on all sides by London street fronts while waiting to board their pirate ships. In August of 1954, Imagineer Marvin Davis completed a plan of the Peter Pan fly-through with scene details like Hangman's Tree and Crocodile Creek. This plan routed ships through an opening in Skull's Rock, uh, the Stony Face, and like the Ryman plan, showed the track path guiding the boats in a clockwise direction opposite to what would later be built. By late 1954, uh, Bob Mattei and others had erected a test track in a ride mock-up in the special effects shop building at the studio, and Bill Martin completed a tentative track layout drawings of the Peter Pan ride in November of 1954, which depicted the attraction as it would be built, with the ride's vehicles flying counterclockwise from London to Neverland. So by March of 1955, only four months until opening day, veteran Disney artists Ken Anderson and Claude Coates were working overtime to make these Fantasyland attractions a reality. Ken Anderson said that their work at the time was both frantic and creatively spontaneous. They already had the hook, uh, the look, well, and the hook. They had the look, the story, and the key scenes thought out because of the film, so they just went in and started, he claims. Once the flying boat uh, conveyance system had been tested, installation began in the new ride buildings at the park. And models of various scenes for Peter Pan had been done in advance, but much of the scene detailing actually took place on site at Disneyland. Uh, in many cases, Claude Coates and Ken Anderson actually painted images directly onto the plywood flats, which would serve as the black light scenery within the first few uh, versions of the ride. Peter Pan used black light throughout the attraction, but limited its uh, use of uh, flats to the initial bedroom scene and the London rooftops. Since guests were to fly above and past large visual elements, like Skull Rock in uh, Neverland, it was necessary to, pre to present them fully realized and in three dimensions, making it quite different from the other Fantasyland rides. And at that time, the use of ultraviolet blacklight as a special effect it was still pretty much a novelty, and it paid off quite well with the guests. Since uh, Captain Hook's ship paid a huge role, especially in the climax of the film, it was decided that that was what was going to be carrying guests throughout the ride. And the earliest versions of the ships featured alternate colors, you know, some red and white, some black and red, but they all had skull and crossbones on the sails, insides uh, glaring down at each uh, of the riders once they get into the ship. And they've always been kind of toy-like in their appearance, with ornate carved decorations in the fore and the aft, and old-fashioned lanterns above the fantails. And there were originally nine boats operating within the attraction, with a tenth one being held in reserve in case one of them broke down. The pirate ships were seven feet long and four and a half feet wide. They were cast in fiberglass from molds taken from an original clay sculpture by Chris Mueller. Each weighed 250 pounds. The earliest vehicle drive mechanisms and the track system from which they were suspended were obtained from the Cleveland Tram Rail Company. They were known for their overhead conveyor systems, which provided industrial companies a way to move materials above the floor. Now, each was powered with a one-horsepower electric motor, with a gearbox located forward of a wheeled trolley carriage. And these carriages were positioned above the ships and rested on a single rail, which in turn hung from the steel supports uh, along the ceiling of the building. Now, the carriages used a friction drive with a pinch-drive wheel system to permit the vehicles to climb or descend as the track dictated. The boats themselves were actually attached to this carriage by the ship's mast uh, in the front and the rear. 
The colorful sails that were attached to the mast were small, but they did actually block the view ahead and behind, uh, which was intentional since most of the scenes presented to the passengers were located below and around the boat. So it kind of hid all the mechanisms from, mm. you know, very decoratively. And, and, and you can hide from the pirates sometimes. Mostly the pirates. Yeah. Okay. So in the queue and throughout the ride, scene elements were positioned to obscure the steel track and trolley system. As the boats ascended, circled, and even approached each other in the blacklit gloom, riders were not conscious of what held them up above London and Neverland. The ride's track system was divided into electrical blocks, with each ship moving into the next unoccupied section. The original track rail system was noisy and was actually redesigned regularly as a result, and each boat had a pronounced keel with it extended downward uh, along the length of the hull. This was held within a slot along the floor uh, during passenger loading at ground level in order to ensure that the boats remained stable. When the ships climbed through the bedroom and out into London, however, they could be made to swing sideways, a risky activity which became popular with younger guests. In 1960, the attraction was refurbished and improved by a WED team headed by Yale Gracie. And most of the elements of the ride, including the lighting, and the sound system, and the scenery, and the animation, they were all upgraded. And many of the track problems were resolved uh, as a result of this refurbishment. When Disneyland opened, all of Fantasyland had a medieval theme, regardless of what the attraction was. The front of Peter Pan had beautiful murals by Claude Coates and Ken Anderson, who had both worked on the film. The huge detailed paintings depicted characters and scenes from the film to prepare writers for what was to come. As guests neared the front of the line, they viewed a huge skull rock leering down at ships emerging from the ride just before stepping on board their own pirate ship to take them off to Neverland. Now, the initial sequence of the attraction has always seemed to flash by very, very quickly. The overhead track, uh, starting at a height of 8 feet 9 inches uh, in the loading area, lifted each pirate ship 2 feet higher uh, around a sharp left curve and then threw an open window into the Darling Family Nursery. Now, within a space of 16 feet, guests were shown the children's rooms, uh, portraits of the Darling family, uh, pictures of Peter Pan and Neverland, kind of as a preview of what was to come later on the ride. And as the song played in the background, you know, think of a wonderful thought, you know, that one, P Peter's voice <laughs> calls out, what are, you, what are you laughing about? That was pretty good, actually. That, I'm kind of proud for that, that one. Good. <laughs> no, I, was, I was just because I, I didn't sing it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yep. uh, Peter yells out, come on, everybody, here we go. And, you know, his projected shadow appears on the wall, and then he goes out the window, off on an adventure. Much like the film, you are transported into the night air out over London. The ship follows a track that lifts it up another four feet for the next 100 feet. This sense of ascent was further exaggerated by a series of quaint and crooked English structures, which seem to drop away on both sides below the path of the ride vehicle. Built to a diminishing scale, these houses got smaller as guests flew higher until their tiny, lighted windows and other features blended with the miniature details up ahead. While the previous nursery scene had been brightly lit with a combination of uh, daylight or incandescent light and black light, this nighttime scene actually uh, contrasted darkness with the odd, focused glow of the ultraviolet illumination. And wire mesh clouds hovered above and around the gliding ships, and countless stars pinpointed their flight across the night sky. There was this fog-like fabric scrim that obscured most upper vision, and the moon shone out from a mural on a distant wall. 
And as guests marvel at the strange blue-white glow of their shirts and whatever garments they're wearing, mostly their shoelaces, um, the flying replica of Hook's ship doubled back and then carried him forward through an F-curb uh, over old London town. Tiny rows of moving blacklit headlights and sounds from speakers placed along the floor indicated traffic along London's busy boulevards and gave movement to the mostly flat grid of city lights below. Small versions of English landmarks like the Tower Bridge, the Thames River, and St. Paul's Cathedral, and surprisingly no TARDIS, provided three-dimensional relief and served to remind viewers that they were flying high above London. The vehicles actually reached the highest point in the attraction, 16 feet 9 inches from the floor, as they approached, retreated, and then swung around the huge clock tower of Big Ben. Uh, the glowing face and the loud reverberating chime, and the, the reverse perspective of the tower, meaning that it got larger the higher the model went up, it made it seem really, really high. And once Big Ben receded, the tiny stars were replaced by multi-pointed crystals floating on all sides. And ahead in the sky was Tinkerbell, moving in this continuous circle like she was waiting for each boatload of guests to follow her straight on to Neverland. The ships then passed through a brief section of darkness as the track turned toward the center of the attraction with only the large hanging stars to engage the attention of the passengers. Here, as the, bent track, as the track bent slightly to the right, the ship paused, then gently dropped a single foot to 15 feet 9 inches as if to mark its descent towards Neverland Island. As the ship continued to the right, it climbed again and the nearby stars gave way to distant pinpoints once more. The view ahead became filled with the dark ride's destination, Neverland. Now, right now, I'm sure you want to learn more about Neverland, but too bad. You're going to have to wait till next episode. <laughs> I know, it's a cliffhanger, I apologize, but tune in to episode 162 of Communicore Weekly as we continue our look at the Disneyland version of Peter Pan's flight, and then the eventual Walt Disney World version at the Magic Kingdom, and then how the ride has changed over the years overall. Yeah, we, we'd love to hear what you think about. Did you get to experience the earlier versions of Peter Pan at Disneyland? Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly hotline at 424-785-4628. 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Tarkin by James Luciano. I've been a Star Wars fan since I saw the original film in the theaters, yes, in 1976. I carried a yardstick with me all over the neighborhood that summer. George Taylor, the original Star Wars kid. <laughs> yeah, well, there were no, there's no video evidence of that, actually. Never mind. Um, <laughs> do, do, do. So, Hello, Andy. Let's... This is Jeff. I have a question for you. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Um... Anyway, I, I, I unfortunately lived through the dearth of Star Wars in the late 80s and the early 90s, that, that really dark period. Not quite as dark as the darkest timeline, but close. Um, and the moment that the book, the Hand of Thrones series, was released, it almost felt like a rebirth to me. I was very excited to get back into the Star Wars. I began collecting and reading every book I could uh, until the 1999 release of Vector Prime. And that was the book from the expanded universe in which Chewbacca died. Well, spoilers! I, but but that's okay, that's okay. The entire series, I felt it become sort of muddled, you know, and it was hard to keep interest. And then when Disney bought Lucasfilm and they announced any book that had been written outside of the movies were no longer canon, I was sort of relieved, sort of confused, and sort of hopeful. Because I didn't know what to expect, you know? 
And then when Tarkin was released in November 2014, I was really excited because they had an awesome cover. And it's you can judge a book by its cover. I kn- Why was it going there? Oh, man. <laughs> so I, I've said this on the show before, but I have made no effort in hiding the fact that I kind of like the Star Wars movies. Um, to be fair, Empire is amazing, and I love it. Um, but I do love all of the expanded universe stuff. Uh, the books, the games, the comics, I mean, all that stuff, I love it. I can't get enough. Shadows of the Empire is still one of my favorite books at slash media experiments. Um, mm. You know, the Nintendo 64 game, top notch, That's love true. it. Yeah. Uh, but much like George, I was really curious to see what Disney was going to do when they said they were going to rewrite the expanded universe that had been in our heads and minds for all these years. Um, and the, the first thing we both experienced uh, was Tarkin. And it made me really happy that they did this. So the reason behind the book Tarkin is to find out how Tarkin became Grand Moff Tarkin. And I still like to know what a moff is, but I thought it was those fuzzy things Russian people were on their heads. I thought it was short for Stephen Moffat. Ah, that could be what it is. Well, anyway. Um, but, But following his path is pretty much the basis for the novel. You know, we meet him. We meet Tarkin as a young boy from a family of means that has a pretty unique way of grooming their males for success, of getting them to prove their leadership. Uh, and in this case, in Tarkin's case, it pays off in spades, and you see a, a glimpse of his intelligence and his future leadership skills. And as the novel progresses, we follow Tarkin's career and his eventual pairing with Darth Vader. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was pretty ingenious to show uh, Moff Tarkin as he is in the quote-unquote present day of the novel, Um, overseeing a secret construction project, which we know will eventually become the Death Star, and using his intellect to kind of sniff out a conspiracy, and then interspersing all that with flashbacks to his youth, so we can see how his character overall was formed. Um, This is actually the second of the new Expanded Universe novels, uh, and even though I thought the first one was good, uh, which was A New Dawn, the prequel to the Rebels TV show, this one, in my opinion, completely blew it out of the water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things I really loved about Tarkin, or the book itself, was the development of the title character. We, we only see Tarkin at the end of Revenge of the Sith. And in the Clone Wars cartoon, uh, he's in there throughout. And of course, we see him in, in A New Hope. Uh, and getting this long-form look into the character was really, to me, was really quite eye-opening. And, and one thing that, that caught my attention was that Tarkin was sort of presented in a similar vein as, as Sherlock. Um, that high-functioning sociopath type of thing. Uh, <laughs> he, he was really quick with the details, and he was able to suss out you know, all the little things that would make an, uh, an ally or an opponent tick. Uh, it added a dimension to the character that, that you know, surprisingly made you sympathize with him, uh, even knowing how evil he becomes. Mm, dun, dun, dun. I was, thank you, I was waiting for that. We needed it that. It was coming. So, <laughs> uh, kind of, kind of a weird comparison to make, but we reviewed those Disney villain backstory books, like the Beast yeah. Within and Fairs of of the Mall, and this it was kind of like that in a lot of ways. Um, but Tarkin is the really perfect example of how to do a villain's backstory right. Um, I mean, I was engaged and interested from the get go, and I really enjoyed Tarkin's past being fleshed out over the course of the entire novel, and it, it really gave some great insight into his personality. And how he came to be like close with Vader, like they are in A New Hope, and it, it was just—it was really amazing. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a beautiful way to present his backstory. It's the way it should be done. Uh, I, I did enjoy a lot of the expanded universe, you know, like we talked about before, but found that I was getting really lost in the different storylines before Disney bought Lucasfilm. And in this book itself, 
really integrates beautifully into the cinematic universe and really adds, you know, a lot of flavor to the overall series. And I can't wait to read more like the forthcoming Heir to the Jedi and just looked up on Amazon and they've got at least six or seven more books coming out this year. The Star so, Wars books are coming. I'm excited. Very excited. So yeah, basically read this, uh, especially if you're interested in Tarkin and how he became the first Grand Moth or, you know, the Empire in general or you're a Star Wars nerd. I mean, any of them. It's a really fantastic <laughs> read. I think it's worth your time and I think they really nailed it here. Yeah. So this week's book is Tarkin by James Luciano. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 Second Review. This week's 60 Second Review, we're looking at the Diamond Edition of 101 Dalmatians on Blu-ray, which is exciting because I love the movie. Great to see it. Uh, glad to see it on Blu-ray. Looks good. Sounds great. And with over 6.5 million spots... Not much else you need to say about the film. I mean, yeah, you guys have already seen the <laughs> film. I would hope at this point you already know how wonderful it is. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's worth mentioning how great it looks on Blu-ray. Yeah. And I also think it's worth mentioning the two different ways you can view it. Um, you can review, you can watch it in its regular format, or you can watch it with like painted backgrounds on the side to fill up the, the rest of mm -hmm. the screen so it's widescreen. I thought that was kind of uh, ingenious, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, they've done that with some other uh, Blu-ray or high-definition things. And personally, I find it distracting. Really? The background changes. Are, oh, what happened over there? Oh, what happened in the movie? Even though I've seen it a million times. I but, know. I kind of, I, I liked it. I think I found it subtle and kind of relaxing almost. But okay. agree, agree to disagree on that we one. We can agree to disagree. Yes, we can. So, all right. So, great movie. You need to buy it on Blu-ray. But what about the extras? Um... Right off the bat, I need to talk about the Lucky Dogs special feature, which was kind of a <laughs> retrospective about the making of the film by some of the yes. animators and people that worked on it. Um, yeah. The first person you see, aside from the Dalmatian, is a man very close to my heart. You may have heard of him. His name is Rolly Crump. And then the last thing you see is Rolly Crump. And then in the middle, you see a lot of Rolly Crump. Basically, this is the best special feature in the history of special features, special features. He came on, I was like, I know that guy from right? somewhere. That guy looks really familiar with those big glasses. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's it. That's a it's a great look at it because in addition to Mr. Crump, they do talk to a few other people involved with the film, including um, the the lead actress who did the did the voices, and uh, it was fun. It's a good look at it. Um, there are some other features, like there's an all new short, the Further Adventures of Thunderbolt, and I thought that was cute. You know, sort of continues the cartoon that, that the puppies are the watching. Film, which yeah. Rolly worked on that scene in the ah, actual film. Cool. See, See I'm tying that in again. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cute, actually. I, I did enjoy watching that uh, the further adventures. Mm -hmm. Which I like that one. And then we watched the um, the best dog on dog in the world, <laughs> which was a 1961, you know, basically Walt Disney presents Disneyland special. Uh, promoting 101 Dalmatians. So was it? It was like a, it was like a meta commercial inside of a commercial inside of a. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, it, it had some features about looking at how important dogs were all over the world, different jobs they they did, and how important dogs are to humans and stuff like that. It was Walt cute. Disney was Master of Marketing. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. That's what it said on the bottom <laughs> of the screen when he when he popped up in that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then surprisingly there was the Dalmatians 101 hosted by Cameron Boyce who I didn't know who it was until he came up on screen I was like oh he's that kid from Jesse because <laughs> 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 my youngest would watch all the time but don't tell him I told you guys because he'll get mad and that was actually 
wasn't annoying like most of the other Disney Channel yeah, stars. Yeah, that was kind of surprising, this. actually. You know, and it made me really excited to look forward to the Disney Channel's Descendants. Yes. That looks kind of neat. But he basically just gives us uh, the top five, reason, top five reasons Dalmatians uh, 101 is a great film. So Fair enough. Which is good. Fair which enough. Is good. And, and it had the regular classic bonus features. Which are all okay. They just—they're not. They weren't remastered in high definition. Yeah, they but always, for whatever reason, they always just like throw them on there, and they—they're—they're they're all right. I mean, they're great features. Don't get me wrong, oh, but yeah, I wish yeah. they would remaster them. Um, yeah. But overall, I—I I mean, if you don't have it on Blu-ray already, actually, I think this is a nice upgrade over the previous Blu-ray. Yes, um, it is. I—I I would definitely say this is worth purchasing. Uh, yeah, I, I give it two so thumbs too. up. So this should be actually instead of the Diamond Edition, it should be called 101 Dalmatians, the Rolly Edition. I'm okay with that. I'm really not just saying you should buy this because Rolly's <laughs> on the disc. I really do believe you should buy it. But the Rolly thing yeah. is an added bonus. I think it's worth it too. It's a classic film, changed animation, especially for Disney, um, with the xerographic process and everything like that. But we can cover that later. Yes. So yes. So all right, uh, two spots up, or 101 spots up. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> when you're walking around the Expedition Everest queue in the world's greatest full-day park, Animal Kingdom, you'll go through a bunch of rooms. And in the one just before the loading platform, you'll see uh, some scenes behind some uh, graded bars. And one of them has earrings attached to the sign, and it says... Antique Tibetan earrings for sale. Need money for next trek. Willing to bargain. Contact Joe at earringguy.net.andp. And then handwriting underneath it, it says, or look me up at Shangri-La upstairs, Joe. This is a great nod, of course, to Imagineer Joe Rohde and his unmistakable earrings. Also, this one is for my homegirl, Ashley Ace, who actually emailed us about it, and it was on my list of eventual to-dos, but her sending in the photo of it actually brought it to the top of the list. So, thank you, Ashley. You can find her on, on Instagram and Twitter at DisneyFied underscore Ash. She totally gets my love of Animal Kingdom, and that's why we're friends. <laughs> Not the only reason, though? No, I mean, she's awesome all around, but I mean, the oh, Animal Kingdom part actually helps. Okay. Of okay, course. Good, good. You know, basically, Animal Kingdom Park is one whole five-legged goat dedicated to Joe. Uh, okay, I'd pretty agree with that. So, yeah, pretty I'd much agree with so. That. <laughs> I'd agree. Uh, so, before we, we end the show, we want to announce this week's winner for the year of a million or so limited time cadets without the word Yay. magic in the title. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that in there. And this week's uh, prize winner is going to receive an After the Fair DVD, which we actually talked about uh, in episode 155 and 156 with Ryan Ritchie, who actually made the film uh, of last season. So you got, if you guys want to check out more about the movie, check out worldsfairmovie.com. But the winner is Elizabeth McAllister in Auburn, California. Congratulations, Elizabeth. I will be sending that out to you very, very shortly, and I hope you enjoy the film. Yay! And don't forget to hang out and listen to the outro so you can find out how you can be part of the year of a million or so limited time cadets. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please leave us a comment wherever you're listening, whether it's on YouTube or iTunes or wherever you listen. Get, leave, leave us a little comment. Let, let us know what you think of this week's show. Yeah, tell us how much you love us, basically. Okay. Uh, you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. And don't forget to send us your birthday, your name, and address so we can add you to our special promotion. And, of course, like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly, where we're posting some really weird pictures again lately. <laughs> 
<laughs> and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagine Nerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, leave us a message on the Communico Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. Yep, be sure to visit CommunicorWeekly.com and visit the Communa Store where you can buy awesome t-shirts, including those designed by Jeff Delgado, and buy your very own copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical. Oh yeah. And of course, don't forget to send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856, and I will send you stickers and your official cadet membership card. That's awesome. I love that. Okay. And you can always support us on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash weekly. Uh, pledge a small amount to us. We've got some great items up there, including a brand new piece from the Communicore Weekly Orchestra. Which is kind of hilarious and very old, and I thought it was lost to time, and I'm glad it's not. I'm glad we found it, too. So for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I want the math.